Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. This morning we return as we go through the book of Romans. We're at the end of Romans chapter 7, and uh, it's been three weeks since we have been in Romans. And for those of you who haven't been here with us, let me briefly give you an update that causes you to be able to step in um, to where we are this morning, understanding more what we're doing. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul spends a good bit of time uh, explaining that we're dead to sin. And then at the beginning of uh, chapter 7, we find him talking about the fact that we have uh, died to the law. We've died to the law and we have died to sin. And so, you know, the response that we have is we look at ourselves as Christians, if you're a believer, and we say, well, I don't, you know, I don't feel like I've, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't really feel like I've died to sin. And it seems like the law is pretty living to me. And so, as the Apostle Paul has been going on explaining that we have died to sin and died to the law, we're kind of like, yeah, 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 but we feel inside of ourselves a need for him to resolve the tension that this is building in us. And the Apostle Paul is very sympathetic as a writer. He understands us. And the reason is the Apostle Paul is not like celebrity preachers. The Apostle Paul sees his own sin. And he's never trying to lift himself above other people. And so he's sympathetic. And so the Apostle Paul comes to the end of chapter 7, and all of a sudden as we read him, we go, yeah, that, you know, that! You know, we're desperate to hear what he says at the end of chapter 7. Because what he says at the end of chapter 7 is, There's this deep conflict in me. Now, three weeks ago you heard that there are a lot of scholars, a lot of seminary professors, a lot of pastors who say that the Apostle Paul, actually, he's not talking about you or me or himself at the end of chapter 7. He's talking about an old, unregenerate Jew. He remembers what he used to be like before he was on the road to Damascus. And so he's speaking about himself prior to being born again by the Spirit of God. He is not a Christian. No Christian would ever describe himself in this way. No Christian would have such a battle with sin. And so right at the point where the Apostle Paul intends you to be encouraged and strengthened and not to despair, preachers are trying to rob you of that. And they're trying to tell you, no, this is not for you. This is no comfort for you. Do you understand this? Now, how evil is that? And what on earth would make a minister of the gospel rob you of this comfort? Okay, now we're going to come back to that question. We're going to read the last five verses of Romans chapter 7 this morning. And uh, again, I'm going to try to explain where it's coming out of as we get into it. But let us hear the word of the Lord, which is eternally true. 
Romans 7, 21 to 25. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a few weeks ago we saw that the first half of chapter 7 is, in the past tense, focused on the unregenerate man. Now, I'm going to be using that word fairly common, frequently, regenerate, unregenerate. When I say unregenerate, I'm talking about somebody who has not yet been second born, born again. Somebody who has not had the work of God change him from death to life. Somebody who has not repented and believed in Jesus Christ. And so the first half of the chapter, he's talking about a man who isn't born again. He's a man that doesn't have faith in Jesus Christ. He may have awareness of his sin, but he has not turned to Christ. And he hasn't done it because the Holy Spirit has not given him new birth, what Jesus referred to. And so there's no question, everybody who reads these chapters, everybody who preaches them, Everybody agrees that the first half of the chapter refers to those who are not Christians, who are not believers, who are not regenerate. The fight comes over the second half of the chapter. Because what lots of people say is, well, the second half of the chapter refers to those who are unregenerate also. Now, let's engage this issue again, not as deeply as we did a couple of weeks ago. Um, In the second half of chapter 7, we noted the prominence of the first person singular pronoun. Constantly through the second half, the Apostle Paul says, I. One time, he doubles down, and he says, I myself. In case you didn't get what I meant, I myself. He uses this first person plural pronoun 39 times in the second half of the chapter. 39 times. And so it seems pretty clear that the Apostle Paul is talking about himself, right? We'll all agree with that. Then the question becomes, is he talking about what used to be true of him, or is he talking in the present tense? Well, in point of fact, the pivot of the chapter is 14, and at 14, you won't be surprised to hear that it changes from past tense to present tense. Okay? And so he says, I, over and over again, I myself, and he's using the present tense. So in in, in the old part, he talks about past tense. In the new part, he talks in present tense. He says things like in verse 15, I am doing the very thing I hate. So we know I is I, 
And we know am doing is present participle, right? Ongoing, I am doing the very thing I hate. He says in verse 17, now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in him. The sin that dwells in him, it's again Paul, I myself, I, 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 I. Sin dwelling in him is what does it. And then he says, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. He doesn't say nothing good dwelled in me before the work of Christ. He says nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. And then 19, for the good that I want, present tense, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. It's present tense. And now we get to these final five verses of chapter 7, and he continues to speak of himself, and he continues to speak in present tense. I find, not I found, I find then the principle. Verse 23, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me, present tense. Verse 24, wretched man that I... That's right. That's right. Can you imagine us <laughs> changing it to was? <laughs> That's the American church. I always, make, I always say that the American church today is, is you know, <laughs> you know. I was talking to a guy, a pastor, this week, and I asked him how things were going. And he gave me what I, uh, no, no offense meant, okay, but he gave me what I later said to a former campus crusade guy is the campus crusade answer, the crew answer, right? How are you doing? Well, things had been tough. Things were difficult, <laughs> you know, In other words, evangelicalism can never confess wretched man that I am. Present tense. All we can do is, is sort of share with other people that, that things were looking better, but they're looking better now. We had a guy in our church who was raising support for, uh, he, he had been a, a crew uh, staff member for years. And uh, his wife had a relationship with my wife, and I had a relationship with him. And uh, every time I'd ask him how things were going, he'd say, oh, wonderful. But every time my wife would talk to his wife, it was awful. And, you know, unfortunately, I happened to share a lot of my life with my wife, including what her friends say to her, (laughs) you know. And people don't realize that sometimes we put two and two together, you know. And so one night I'm talking to her, and I said, so how are things going with me? And she says, well, it's awful. So I listen. And so then she, I go to, to her husband, and I say to him, you know, dude, I, I call him his name. And I say, dude, how come every single time I ask you how things are going, you say, well, they were very difficult, but things are great now. And I say, my wife says that your wife doesn't have the same report. 
Now listen, we laugh because we all do this stuff, right? But this is lying. Make no mistake about it. It is a method of marketing. It is a cold, cynical method of raising money. Do you understand me? And so I said this to him, and he looked at me. And he sort of got crestfallen, and he said, well, you know, actually the truth is things have been difficult. But things are going much better now. You know, and that was the end of me asking him how things were going. The Apostle Paul does not say here what? He doesn't say, oh, wretch that I was. Present tense. So again, I ask you what I said at the beginning, which is why is it that we are so resistant to this second half of the chapter being the normal Christian life. Why are we against this? Now, those of you who were here in Sunday school have a hint. Nobody wants to hear a confession of sin. Nobody wants to see other people the way they tell us they are when they confess sin. Some of you as mothers have had the experience of your teenage son coming to you and confessing his sin to you. Do you want to hear that? No, you don't. You thought that he was going to escape being a man. And then you found out that this wasn't a sexless creature you had in your home, but this is a boy and he's becoming a man. There is a lot of pressure on us to deny the sin in the church among the people of God. But at what cost? At what cost? First of all, you have to do unbelievable jumping jacks to turn the second half of Romans 7 into something that does not have to do with Christians. You have to get past the first person singular. I, 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 I. And then you have to jump over I myself, and that requires a high jump. Then you have to get past the clear switching of past tense to present tense. Okay? And at that point, don't you maybe feel just a little bit hypocritical? Don't you feel like maybe you're stretching the story a little bit? That everybody should start wrinkling their nose and saying, Daddy... Read the words on the page. When, I, when our kids were little, I'd take a book they knew really well, and i just, out of the blue, read something wacko. You know, all of a sudden, the machine gun appears in Pat the Bunny, you know. <laughs> and immediately, you know, the kids would go, Daddy, that's not what it says. And we need more of that in the church. That's not what it says. What does this text say? Well, in the verses leading up to our verse, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 3.1, the Apostle Paul writes, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. He's writing Christians. I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. 
It's, it's the church he's writing to. And then you come to these last five verses. He says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And so what we see then, verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. And then verse 23, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war. Waging war. I mean, come on. When I entered the ministry in the 80s, the big conflict in my denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA and in the Methodist Church, all the mainline churches, they were removing all the hymns that had anything to do with war from their hymnals. The women didn't like it. The men did, but you knew you were in mainline denominations because the percentage of men to women in the denominations were the opposite of biblical churches, all right? And so you always had a preponderance of female members in the mainline churches. And they didn't want to sing about war, you know? Well, if you've ever listened to Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, you know, why you don't want to sing about war, you know, Bob Dylan, you know? John Lennon. All we need is love. Love, 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 love. I was talking to a pastor um, that I've never met, and he's on a different continent. And so we got, we talked over Skype, and this was like two weeks ago. And he said to me that he's noticed as he begins to think about what it means to be a man as opposed to a woman, that the theme of warfare has been removed from the church. And so he wants to write a book on warfare. The warfare of the church and the Christian. Well, here's a place warfare occurs, right? Doesn't it say, waging war against the law of my mind? There's a law in his body, in the members of his body, is waging war against the law of my mind and making me what? A prisoner. Now, we can all understand this. You know? He's a captive. The war turns him into a prisoner. A prisoner of war. And this is how he describes the normal Christian life. There's a war going on. And then you start thinking about all the places in Scripture where it uses similar language and imagery. Then you go, then you go to the hymns. What's the hymn of the Reformation? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo me, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to whimper through me. Now, it says triumph. But, you know, we don't want to be triumphalistic. And so what goes on is all the Christians feel the tension growing. You can't help but feel the tension growing, right? We all, right? We all feel it. And so we think, you know, I think I'll modulate. I think I'll modulate Scripture. I think I'll modulate the Gospel. I think I'll modulate sin. I think I'll modulate God's holiness. And I think I'll modulate judgment. And I think I'll modulate God's decrees. Because, you know, ultimately, you know, those decrees are nasty. 
And so we modulate and modulate. You remember Freddie, what's his face? Uh, the, the boxing trainer. What was his name? Famous New York boxing trainer. Atlas. You remember him saying that every boxer he trained had a lie that he told himself. You remember this story? And he said, one of my main jobs is to dis to disengage them from this lie. And he said, the lie is they enter the ring and they tell themselves, if I don't hit him hard, he won't hit me hard. And this is the church today. We're modulating, we're suppressing, we're lying, we're greasing ourselves. You know, we're... And with words, words are the main method that we grease ourselves to fit into the world. Words are the main way that we try to hide the fact that we're allowing the world to press us into its mold. And this is the reason I never stop yapping about the translation of Scripture. When we're to the point that we translate Scripture differently for our generation at the very points that the world is screaming at us, here's a clue. I'm not smart, but I think I get it. And you say, oh, you are too smart. I say, no, I'm not. I'm just thick-headed enough to not go along with them. And, you know, I graduated in the bottom half of my class in high school. And that was an achievement because it was Elgin High School. If any of you have been in the Chicago area, you know what Elgin is. And it wasn't Larkin, it was Elgin, which was the lousy school in Elgin. And I didn't have a C average. <laughs> okay, now listen. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see why the church wants to say that the second half of Romans does not apply to Christians. Because the minute we say it applies to the life of Christians, what has to happen? Come on, people, wake up. Sleepers, awake. War is what has to happen. There is no DMZ in the life of the soul, not one. There isn't an inch you can stand that you're not either dying or being born again. There's not a moment in your life that you're not headed to hell or to heaven. There's no place you can sleep. You are in a war. Now, the particularities of the war that you're in differ from man to man. Some have horrible sins that are unbelievably embarrassing to other people. Why? We don't know. And so some people are so proud that it takes something guttural 
like sexuality to out them. Are you with me? Uh, King David. Was King David outed as a sinner? (laughs) I say yes. But some people, their wickedness is what? Well, think of the Apostle Peter. Now, who was outed more, David or Peter? Peter is just, what you fault him with is being an optimistic, triumphalistic loudmouth. <laughs> you know? Oh, Lord, even if everybody else fails you, if everybody else, oh, no, no, go, I'll die. You know? And Jesus says, ah, you know, before the cock crows three times, you know, you're going to deny me. No, 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 I'll never do it. And you know what Jesus says to him? Peter, Satan, what? Satan has asked to sift you like sand. Imagine being sifted like sand with Satan. But I have prayed for you. Now listen to me. You think about the awfulness of Jesus coming to the seashore. And here the disciples are after the crucifixion. They're out there fishing, right? And, and they're honest working men. You know, all of a sudden there's Jesus at the shore. You remember Peter jumps out of the boat, you know? I mean, you love Peter, right? But then he gets there, he eats breakfast, and then what does Jesus say to him? I mean, imagine. You know, you're there. You're Peter. And Jesus says, Chris, do you love me? That's fully embarrassing. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, Chris, do you love me? Lord, yeah, I love you. Feed my sheep. I'm coming again. Chris, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know all things. Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. How many times did Peter deny Christ? What made him do it? What is it, a nuclear bomb? Was it Joseph Stalin? Was it Goliath? A little servant girl. Little servant girl. And so you you look at David and you look at his confession of sexual sin and murder. And he had to be driven to it by Nathan. And then you look at Peter. And this text does not describe the normal life of Christians. And then you look at the Apostle James. And what does James say? He says, not many among us should desire to be teachers. For you may be certain that we who teach shall ourselves be judged with greater strictness. 
And then, the first person plural, all of us often go wrong. Where is the victorious Christian life for the Apostle James? Doesn't he know not to say things like this? How can I stay asleep when he's yapping about all of us often go wrong? How about the Apostle Paul? At the end of his life, the Apostle Paul says what? The Apostle Paul says, I, what? Was the chief of sinners. Is that what he says? No, he says, I am the chief of sinners. What about King David in the book of Psalms? He talks on and on in Psalm 119 about his love for the law of God. And he confesses his sin. King David is the one who, after the awful sin with Bathsheba, he says, against thee and thee alone have I done this wicked thing. He talks about not being able to sleep. He talks about his bones being burning up with his refusal to confess his sin. And then he says, finally, I came and I confessed my sin. This is King David, a man after God's own heart. How about Job? The righteous man. Do you remember what Job said? Job said this. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. This is the righteous man, Job. And how about the prophet Isaiah? Prophet Isaiah says this. Isaiah 6.5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you remember Simon Peter? At the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, Jesus goes out and finds them fishing. And he tells them to throw their net on the other side of the boat. Do you remember this? One of the things you should notice in Scripture is where there's a non sequitur, where something happens that makes no sense. It appears to come out of nowhere, like the end of Psalm 139. You know, this beautiful Lord, you have fearfully made me, and, I just, and I'm just so gorgeous, and in my mother's womb, and all this soft, cuddly stuff. And then all of a sudden, there's a non sequitur. Don't I hate the wicked away from me, you bloodthirsty men? I hate them with a perfect... Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me in them. It makes absolutely no sense to those who compartmentalize Scripture and who say the end of Romans 7 doesn't apply to Christians. David's, David's waxing elephant, as, as Max would say. You know, he's going, it's like beautiful for funerals and beautiful for the hospital room where a baby's been born. It's just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. 
And then, don't I hate the wicked away from me, you bloodthirsty menace. Chill out, dude. And so, all through Scripture, you'll find these things that appear to come out of nowhere in Scripture. And here's one of them. I'm going to give you two of them. One of them is, they're out there fishing, and they've caught nothing, and Jesus is going to call them to be his disciples. He's going to call them to be fishers of men. And so he says, hey, dudes, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And so they throw their nets on the other side of the boat. And, of course, they get filled with fish, right? And then, immediately, Simon Peter's response in Luke 5, 8, it says, but when Simon Peter saw that, and that's the nets full of fish, when Peter saw the nets full of fish, and, you know, if you were to write fiction for a hundred years, you'd never write what happens next. Because Simon Peter, seeing the net full of fish, saying, he said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You know, the Iowa Writers Program, they're not going to come up with that. And then another one that I absolutely love is the Philippian jailer. And I love the Philippian jailer. He was a man's man. And he was going to do what the Japanese still require out of men who fail in a position of trust. And that is, he was going to kill himself. Because his prison had been blown up and everybody was free. And so he's about to kill himself. And what? They say, don't worry, we're all here. And so that man has gone from life to death to life. In an instant. Don't worry, we're all here. And what is his response? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And it's completely illogical because he's just been saved. And yet he says, and what this shows is the life of the soul in the life of man. As Christians, we're always trying to act as if we have some special revelation that all the pagans around us have no knowledge of. And the Philippian jailer shows us this isn't true. His immediate response being given back his life is, what must I do to be saved? And the Apostle Peter says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And so look, you've got the Apostle John. What does he say? Well, the Apostle John says, if we say we have no sin, what? We're liars. We've got all the patriarchs, we've got all the prophets, we've had the psalm writer of the church, David. We have the apostles, the witness of the apostles. We have the apostle Paul saying, I am the chief of sinners, and we have the second half of Romans chapter 7. And yet in the church, there is a conspiracy to say this does not apply to Christians. And I can't think of anything more depressing 
to the normal Christian than being robbed of the second half of Romans 7. Now, let us ask the question, why would they rob us of this? Why? Do you remember a few weeks ago, I read an excerpt from the commentary that is most respected on Romans by evangelical scholars today, Doug Moo. You remember this? Do you remember what Doug Moo said? He was talking about how it used to be that everybody who was Protestant Reformed said this applies to Christians, but now scholars have moved in the other direction. And, and he goes on and on showing that he's sensitive to people on both sides of the issue. And then finally he says, but this does not apply to Christians. It just can't. But do you remember how he says, I read it to you a few weeks ago, he says in that section that there are some Christians who have, who, I forget how he put it. Do any of you remember? How did he actually put it? He said something like, uh, not all Christians, or what, what was it? Yeah. Yeah. In other words, he, he, he puts on the table the expectation that there are some Christians who don't have much of a struggle with sin. Listen, that is evil. It's evil. Because when he writes that, he's not just misleading his children and his wife and his students at Wheaton College. He is misleading pastors. And he's misleading their sheep. Now, about this point, you're probably thinking, there goes Tim again. I wish he would not name names. Right? Do you know what I did last night? Last night I read a commentary on this section of Romans that was as much food for my soul as reading J.C. Ryle on the Gospels is. Have you ever done that? You know what I'm talking about. Bishop Ryle. The man is Robert Haldane. Have any of you heard of Robert Haldane? One. Two. So I decided to look up and see who he was. I knew he was a Scot. He was from Scotland, right? So I looked up and I found out that Robert Haldane was the scion, the child, the, 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 the inheritor of a very wealthy estate and title in Scotland and born sometime around the middle of the 18th century, in the 1750s, somewhere around there. Maybe 40, 30, I don't know. He lived approximately from halfway through the, the 18th to halfway through the 19th century. And he was a pagan, a typical Presbyterian in Scotland. You know. Do you know how he became a Christian? He became a Christian because of the French Revolution. The French Revolution awoke his soul because of the wickedness of it. A riot of blood 
and rebellion. And so you know what he did? He then took his money, and he began to give it away to the poor. He studied theology, studied scripture. He began to fund foreign missions, which at the time was really sort of entrepreneurial. And he did one book that has survived to today. I mean, there are other books he wrote, but only one, everybody knows, Haldane on Romans. You know? Now, why am I telling you this? Well, because some of you are sitting there thinking, Tim, why do you name names? Can't you just leave Doug Mill alone? You would not believe how peppered his commentary on Romans is with the names of men of that day who were denying that this applies to Christians. Do you know what he says about it? He says this. He names the names. I'm not going to name them to you because you'll never have heard of the people, but he says things like this. We are not at liberty to pervert the word of God in order to preserve it from a contrary perversion. What's the contrary perversion? Well, it's simple. The contrary perversion is that if you're a pagan and you read Romans chapter 7, the second half, and you think that it applies to Christians and you're a pagan, what are you going to say about Christians? You're going to say, what is the point? These people have given up everything to take up their cross and follow Jesus, and then this describes their life? Well, we can't have that. You know, we can't have that. You know, we have to have, we have, to have pagans believing that it's nice to be a Christian. <laughs> By the way, when I mock things, I'm always mocking myself. I always preach to myself. If you don't know me, trust me. I'm not being mean. Maybe I am, but it's me. I mean, isn't that what we all want? We all want people to think that Christians are nice and happy. You know? Look at me. See my smile. Don't you want to come with Jesus and smile too? That's about the depth of the Christian witness today. And so he says, we can't twist Scripture in order to keep it from being perverted by perverts. And so there are unbelievers. You remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus. You remember the Pharisees. Ah, he saved others. Let him save it. He delights in God. Let God deliver him if he delights in God. You know? And that's exactly how they would do if we read him Romans the second half. And it's like, hey, what are you kidding me? You know, you honor God, and then this is what he gives you. This is the normal Christian life. And we're like, well, no, that's Paul before he became a Christian. Me. God loves me and has a wonderful wife for my life. Or a wonderful man for my plan. And then the contrary is, what about hypocrites in the church? Hypocrites come into the church, they read Romans second half of seven, and they say to themselves, well, you know, if that's the normal Christian life, 
I can keep looking at pornography and committing adultery, and I can keep being a drunk, and I can do whatever I want. And occasionally I can release a confession that gives me sort of plausible deniability that I'm, my, my conscience is dead. You know, I can show my conscience, trot it out every once in a while with tears. And so we look at that and we say, no, no. God's grace can't be for men that have a law in them of sin and death. That's Paul before he became a Christian. What is wrong with you? You know, you look at pornography. Shame on you. (laughs) And of course, there is shame, and it should be stated But do you understand, the way I'm saying it's censorious, it's judgmental, it's moralistic. And so that's what we do. People come forward to confess their sin, and we're just so worried about Romans second half of chapter 7 that we say, what is wrong with you? And what are those people here? I'm not a real Christian. And then they think, oh no, no, I, I know other Christians that have confessed that. And then they get the real point, and what is the real point? Shut up. The real point is, shut up. Do not bring your sin to the elders. Do not talk about it in front of the congregation. Hide it. Do you understand this? And that is wicked, and that's what Changing the second half of Romans 7 produces in the church is a bunch of clean people. They never confess their sin. You have any sin? Not I. Well, neither do I. (laughs) And so we're all chilled. We're all asleep. But what are we going to do at the judgment seat of God? Remember what Jeremiah says? The people love it this way. They love to be lied to. But what will they do? You remember? Do you remember? What will they do? Does anybody remember? In the end, what will they do in the end? Listen. We will have none of this. We will have none of it. We will not do it. We will not twist Scripture so that we can protect God from his word. We will not pervert it. We will not change the words that are father and man. We won't change it from woman to married woman, you know, in 1 Corinthians where the head of the woman is, and the the head of every husband is, or the head of every wife is, is, is just awful. And of course, all these changes happen precisely where the culture is screaming at God. It's rebellion. You know, sexuality, you know. We won't do it. Why? We won't do it because why? We're cantankerous? Because we're obstinate? No. We won't do it because if we, if we enter that conspiracy, the good things are taken from us. Now, what are the good things? Well, look at the Apostle Paul here. 
he says this. I have to go backwards. He says, wretched man that I am, present tense, who will set me free from the body of this death? And the good thing, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We lose the ability to worship. You ever go into supposedly evangelical churches today and you just feel all the cloying pressure to act as if you're emotional. And every single song is about how much joy they have. And if you didn't get it the last song, you'll get it the next one. Sin's not sung about. Judgment is not sung about. There's no need. But they shake you. You know, sing about how much you love Jesus. Sing about how much Jesus loves you. Second verse, same as the first. It goes on and on and on and on. And always they talk about passion. You you know what I'm talking about. Passion this, passion that, passion the other thing. My passionate love for Jesus. Jesus' passionate love for me. Grace, grace, grace. Passion, love, love, love. Now listen. If you know anything about language and words, you know that when that is done, it's because those very things are absent. We telegraph our hunger by our repetition. And is there ever been a generation that has less passion, real passion, than this generation? Sexually, sexually. Tom Wolfe was writing about this 30 years ago in his essay, Hooking Up. He says sex has lost any passion in this generation. And what about worship? If we deny that this has to do with Christians, we cannot enter into the Apostle Paul's statement, thanks be to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Because we refuse to wear the drama, the warfare, And so we don't get the goodies. We don't get to stop and exclaim, thanks be to God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Because we have no tension. And do you know what he says next? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's just like, Psalm 139, he just blows it. He had a perfect climax. And then he goes back to the mud. Do you see that? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So then, and we're like, oh yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah, so then what? Come on, come on. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. It's like, dude, <laughs> the acquisition editor is not going to take it. You know, nobody's going to buy your book. You just ruined the high point, <laughs> you know. You had victory. And then, <laughs> it's like the Apostle Paul, 
Can there be any question that this has to do with a Christian? Can there be any question that this is not the Apostle Paul speaking in the present? Doesn't this sound exactly like your normal Christian life? It is. And I'm not going to read it to you because I think you wouldn't have the patience. But in his commentary, what Haldane says over and over again is, this text of Scripture is uniformly, universally the testimony of every man and woman who has ever been born again. He says there is not one Christian who has ever not had this exact testimony in their life. Now, that's a great comfort to me. Is it to you? It's just such a comfort. No, you're not going crazy. You know what my daddy, my daddy, I have a daddy. You know what my daddy used to say to me? A couple of things. One of the things was, Tim, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And he was plagiarizing because he never said that's from Jeremiah 27:33 or whatever it was. So there are a lot of women that would be very upset with my father. Do you know what else he said? He said that he believed that if God allowed us to see our lives as they truly are, that every one of us would be in an insane asylum. Do you understand that? This is a war. And what we need is women and men who will stand with us and get our blood on them. That's what we need. It's not romantic. But my goodness, life is short. And, you know, wouldn't you rather spend your life dying? And is there a dignified way of dying? No. Jesus was naked at the crossroads outside the city gate. And why should we be able to go on beds of bliss? Why should we lie? Why should we lead our children to believe that we're perfect? Why should we restrain ourselves from rebuking our children? Why should we act as if we don't know what our son is doing in the bathroom? Come on. Awake. One final thing. I want you to understand, and Robert Haldane says this very clearly. He says, okay, why are people denying the supplies? And he says there are a lot of people who do not want to know how awful sin is and how holy God is. And I want you to understand that that's the central theme of all the doctrinal battles of the Church of Jesus Christ. It is the center of the Reformation. The Reformation was that the Roman Catholic Church then, and still today, denies the holiness of God 
and denies the nature of the law of God. It pulls them both down so that they can be mediated with money and actions that are external. Do you understand this? But once you see that what God wants is our heart, how does an external action... And then you see Jesus saying, circumcised hearts. And all of a sudden, the impossibility of pleasing God is overwhelming to us. And the standard of his holiness written in his law is overwhelming to us. And then we live in the tension as God has given it to us. And then we read the second half of Romans 7. And we're what? We're ready for Romans 8. (laughs) You know? But every evangelical wants to go directly to Romans 8 without Romans 7. All right, now we're ready for dinner. Let's eat. Come, 